Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts Podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. It is episode 88 of the podcast here on Wednesday, December 28th, 2022. Our final episode for the year of 2022. How about that? Because Sunday is New Year's Day. How about that? But thank you all so much for listening. It is a jam-packed podcast to end the year this week because I got two big things to talk about. We are going to talk about what's happening on Saturday, New Year's Eve, which is the college football playoff semifinals. We haven't talked a lot about football on the podcast this fall, but it's the end of the college football season. There's four teams left to play for anything meaningful. So we're going to talk about that later on in the podcast. But first, I'm going to talk about something that I have wanted to talk about for a while on this podcast. It has always been on the docket, and it is finally getting off this week, because we are talking about the Electoral College. Big debate in the United States about the Electoral College and its role in electing the President of the United States. So we're going to talk about all of that. You've probably got a lot of questions about the Electoral College. You may not even know what it is. That's okay, because I'm going to explain it to y'all in just a minute, right here on the podcast. But before we get to that before we get to all of our topics this week. Remember that if you like the podcast, if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome to Xander's Facts. But if you think that you're going to like the facts this week, remember to click the follow button on this podcast, download this episode, episode 88. You got to download the episodes every week, and then you can undownload them the next day. Then you can re-download them. Just set a reminder. Do that all the time for every episode. Rate and review the podcast. Then go on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Xander's Facts is on there. That's Xander with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. Spread the facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. We call it spreading the facts around here. You can spread the facts about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts, which if you haven't signed up for, it's our weekly newsletter that comes out every Sunday morning. It has the week's top headlines. Check it out. It is free. Click the link in this episode's description. You can check out Xander's Facts link tree. It's got all the Xander's Facts links that you need, including for Xander's Weekend Facts and for the Xander's Facts website, xandersfacts.com, which includes the Xander's Facts shop. Because if you forgot to get anybody anything for the holidays, that's okay, because you can go to xandersfacts.com and do that right now with some pretty cool fact swag. So you should go do that, xandersfacts.com. And speaking of the holidays... I totally forgot to wish all of you listeners of the facts whoops a happy holidays and Merry Christmas because Christmas was on Sunday if you are celebrating Merry Christmas. And by the way, I just thought that I would share a very gracious Christmas greeting to you all because, you know, it's just the jolly thing to do. You know, at this time of the year, this actually, I did not write this, I have to admit. I did not write this Christmas greeting. However. I found it to be just a tremendous Christmas greeting, if you will. I will read it to you here because I just found it truly amazing. Merry Christmas to everyone that is you, including the radical left Marxists that are trying to destroy our country, the Federal Bureau of Investigation that is illegally coercing and paying social and lamestream media to push for a mentally disabled Democrat 
over the brilliant, clairvoyant, and USA-loving Donald J. Trump. And of course, the Department of Injustice, which appointed a special prosecutor who, together with his wife and family, hates Trump, Trump in quotes, more than any other person on Earth. Love to all. Huh. Amazingly, that was all in two sentences, if you didn't know. Also, by the way, if you didn't get the gist, I did not write that. That was from the truth social account of one former president, Donnie Boy. Amazingly, it was in two sentences. The first sentence was everything I wrote except for the words love to all. So all the rest of it was in one sentence. A lot of commas in there. But let me just point out a couple things in this. Because he first off referred to himself as, in the third person, as brilliant, clairvoyant, and in all caps, USA loving. He also included his middle initial, which he loves to do. He called the Department of Justice the Department of Injustice. He put special prosecutor, he put the word prosecutor in quotes for some reason, who, together with his wife and family, hates Trump. He put Trump in quotes there for some reason. He called Joe Biden, presumably, a mentally disabled Democrat. And Merry Christmas to everyone. He's wishing us a Merry Christmas, including the radical left Marxists. So, I mean, that's just, wow. Merry Christmas to you, Donnie boy. And to all of you out there, even if you are a radical left Marxist, and even if you are one of the people who supports a Texas governor, talk about this for a second, before we get to the Electoral College, I have something to say, on Christmas Eve, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, busing about 50 migrants to the front of the residence of the vice president, who was Kamala Harris, on Christmas Eve, with no coats, shelter, food, what have you, just busing them there and leaving them there, which they've done before. But this is Christmas Eve. And the next day, you know, oh, we're great Christians. Ho, ho, ho. No, you're not a great Christian if you do that or if you support it. You're literally going against, like, everything Jesus was trying to teach you. But that doesn't really matter. What matters is owning the libs. And if you don't know that, I mean, seriously, come on. I don't think so. But, you know, Merry Christmas, even to the radical left Marxists. But that was just my little spiel to begin the podcast. That's not even our big topic for this week that we are going to get into because we are heading back to the world of politics on the podcast. It has been a long time since we have extensively talked about the news, political topics on this podcast because of the World Cup, of course, but that's over. So now we can get back to what Xander's Facts does best, which are deep dives. And this week, we are doing an entire deep dive on a pretty big and controversial American institution. And y'all might know, but we're basically basing this podcast off of one big question. Why does the United States have an electoral college? It's a big question, and thankfully, I've got an answer for you. Because every four years, the big debate gets brought up over the old American institution of the electoral college. Why in the world do we choose our president through an electoral college process instead of by popular vote? Because for literally every other elected office, we use the popular vote instead of an electoral college? It's a good question, and I got a good answer. Hopefully, that contains a lot of facts. Gash facts. So we are doing a deep dive this week 
Into the Electoral College, a podcast that I have wanted to do for a while, not just because I want to inform, but because I also wanted to learn why in the world we do an Electoral College. So we're going to talk about what exactly the Electoral College is, because you might not know what it is. You're like, Xander, what in the world are you talking about the Electoral College? Don't worry, I'm going to explain it to y'all. I'm going to explain the history behind it and whether or not it could change in the future. We're going to get to all of those talking about the Electoral College on the Zaders Facts Podcast. So let's get going, but let's start with what exactly it is. Because if you don't know, or you just need a refresher, I'm going to explain to y'all what exactly the Electoral College is, especially if you're listening not in America, or you're not familiar with American politics. You're like, what in the world is the Electoral College? Like, is it some sort of college, university, whatever? Actually, no. What? It is not an actual college. It is a process. If you haven't gotten the gist yet, though, the Electoral College is what the United States uses to appoint the positions of president and vice president. These are the only elected positions in the United States that use the Electoral College. All others, like senators, governors, state legislatures, city councilors, what have you, use the popular vote method. The method for which the Electoral College operates, though, is defined in the Constitution in Article 2, Section 1, Clauses 2, 3, and 4. So basically how it goes is that all 50 states in the United States and the District of Columbia are each given these things called electors. The number of electors that a state gets is determined by the number of congressional representatives it has, meaning that the number of representatives that it has in the House of Representatives plus the number of senators that it has in the Senate equals the number of electors a state gets. So for example, Virginia. Virginia has 11 House representatives. They also have two senators. So they have 13 electoral college fits or electors. Each state and D.C. has at least three because each state has at least one House representative and all states have two senators. So, the number of electoral votes total adds up to 538. So now, if you didn't know why the website 538 or 538 is titled that, now you know. Good to know. In order to win a presidential election, though, the magic number you need is 270 electoral votes. And it's been that way since 1964. Now, in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution, it states that Washington, D.C., which is the seat of the federal government. It's not a state, at least as of now. Washington, D.C. is entitled to the same number of electors as the least populous state. And since there are only 535 members of Congress, there's 100 in the Senate, 435 in the House, the three electors from D.C. gets the Electoral College's total up to 538. So every four years on Election Day, which is the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, we go to the polls to elect a president. But unlike when we cast our ballots for a senator or city councilor, we're actually not casting our vote for the president or the vice president. I don't know if you knew that. But we're actually casting our vote for a slate of electors that will vote for the candidate that we chose. What are you talking about? So let's say that in the 2020 presidential election, the first election that yours truly, Xander, actually got to vote in, Let's say that in that election, I checked the box on my ballot next to Joe Biden's name. Because I actually did. Merku. That's not technically a vote for Joe Biden, actually. 
it's a vote for a slate of 13 electors, because where I vote in Virginia, there's 13 electors, that will cast their votes for Joe Biden later on. So that's kind of complicated. So let me explain. Every four years after Election Day, the electors of each state, all 538 of them, will meet in their state capitals across the country on the first Monday after the second Wednesday of December. This is outlined in the Constitution. These electors cast their votes, hopefully for the candidate that won the popular vote in their state, even though by federal law, they're not actually legally mandated to, although there are a majority of states that do have laws that make sure that they do that. The results are then sent to Congress, and they are counted during a joint congressional meeting of the Senate and the House on a date in the first week of January. So, if you didn't know what was going on in Congress on January 6th, 2021, yeah, they were doing this process. They were counting these votes. Now, in the event that no candidate actually receives 270 votes, the Constitution has also laid out what Congress should do. This could actually happen if there are unfaithful electors, electors that don't vote for the candidate that won their state, or if the election results end in a 269 to 269 tie, which is actually possible, by the way. It's never happened, but it is actually possible. If this happens, a contingent election takes place. In this event, the House would then hold a presidential election session, but it wouldn't be each House member voting. Instead, each state only has one vote. So for instance, all of California's House members, California's House delegation, would come together to individually vote, and then the presidential candidate that wins a majority out of those members from California then wins the one vote for California's delegation. So there are 50 total votes for president in the House. And then the Senate would vote for vice president. Each senator would get one vote. Dang! Either way it happens, the 20th Amendment of the Constitution mandates that either the president or the vice president be inaugurated on January 20th or January 21st if January 20th falls on a Sunday, which it last did in 2013 for Barack Obama's second inauguration and will again happen in 2041. Now, before the 20th Amendment was adopted in 1933, presidents were actually inaugurated later in the year, on March 4th, which was the same day as the new Congress was inaugurated. But now, of course, presidents are inaugurated on January 20th. Congress is inaugurated on January 3rd, which is two weeks before the president. Previously, if we had to do a contingent election in Congress, it would have been the old Congress doing it. Now, it's the newly elected Congress who gets to do it and certify the election, like they were doing on January 6th, 2021. So that's basically what the Electoral College is, but why do we have an Electoral College in the first place? Good question. What's the history behind it? Because it's a little confusing when you actually get down into the details. The big question is, though, why do we use this method for electing a president and vice president in the United States? Well, to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the founding days of the United States after we declared independence from the tyranny of King George and Great Britain. America! Specifically, the Constitutional Convention that took place back in the year of 1787. The result of the Constitutional Convention, if you didn't know, was the creation of the Constitution of the United 
states, which actually replaced the Articles of Confederation, which were supposed to be the founding or the big document governing our country, didn't turn out to be that great. So we created the Constitution. The first proposal at the convention, though, was the Virginia Plan. This plan proposed that Congress be the ones that actually elect the president. But this was, of course, rejected because that never happened. Later, though, founding father and later a Supreme Court justice, James Wilson, actually proposed that electors choose the president. The convention also came up with the decision that the number of electors for each state would equal the number of representatives in Congress that that state has. The delegates, who we basically know as the founding fathers of the United States, noted that an electoral college would make sure that only a qualified individual could become president. Of course, well, 2016, but okay. Man, that was rough. It was noted that the founders didn't trust the American people to make the right choice, and using an electoral college, where the electors only met once every four years, would not be susceptible to manipulation from foreign governments. Which. Okay, so they didn't trust us. But what this actually meant was that electors were not bound in any way to vote for the candidate that their state chose, as I mentioned earlier. In fact, it was actually intended by the Founding Fathers that the electors were allowed to decide who was best suited to be president, not us. We just voted on the electors. The electors were able to decide who was best suited to be president. Uh, Okay. Disrespectful! Now, during the convention, The delegates were split on whether to use this electoral college process or use the popular vote. Two delegates specifically, including James Wilson, who actually proposed the electoral college, and James Madison, noted that they actually preferred the popular vote method. Madison noted during the convention, though, that it would be hard to convince the other delegates to use a popular vote. He used this reasoning. He said, quote, There was one difficulty, however of a serious nature attending an immediate choice by the people. The right of suffrage was much more diffusive in the northern than the southern states, and the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of Negroes. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed, on the whole, to be liable to the fewest objections, unquote. So, obviously, at the time, and this was actually made during the Constitutional Convention, we had the three-fifths clause, where basically slaves were only counted as three-fifths of a person, or, I guess you could interpret this in another way, that three-fifths of slaves were only counted, which was a compromise between the delegates at this convention to determine the number of seats a state would get in the House, the number of electoral votes a state gets, and how much money each state would pay in taxes. Three-fifths of each state's slave population counted towards the state's total population, even though slaves, black people, weren't able to vote until after the Civil War in the United States. So, according to James Madison, we use the Electoral College still today, and it was created back in the day because it was part of a compromise between the northern and the southern states, or those who supported and didn't support slavery at the time. Because of the three-fifths compromise, southern states gained more electoral power because of black people who were slaves at the time who couldn't even participate in the political process. And this is the reason why the southern states wanted an electoral college 
and not a popular vote process because black people did not have the right to vote, but were still counted partially in the census. So southern states gained more power with the Electoral College. If we used a direct popular vote process, less electoral representation would have been given to the slave-owning states. So, yeah, there's that. Yikes! And also, you know what I'm talking about if you've ever taken a high school government class. You know about the Federalist Papers. In Federalist number 68, Alexander Hamilton argues that because an elector cannot be a federal office holder, the electors will not be beholden to any presidential candidate. That's a reason in support of the Electoral College. And then after the convention, James Madison writes in Federalist number 39 that the Constitution was designed to be a mixture of state-based and population-based government. And this is basically what we see in Congress. The Senate is state-based, two seats for each state, and the House is population-based. But Madison argues that the president is a mixture of the state-based and the population-based methods. Actually, when the Constitution was first adopted, Madison and others argued that electors were meant to be brought on on a district basis instead of a statewide basis. So this meant that an elector would actually represent their congressional district instead of the state. Most states back in the day used this method, but it has gradually been phased out in favor of the winner-take-all state method that almost all the states use now. This is what we know today, where the candidate who wins the majority vote in a state wins all the electoral votes in that state. Now, there are two states that do not fully use this method, and those two states are Maine and Nebraska. These two states actually use a mixture, because both of them have two at-large electors that support the winner of the state's popular vote, and they also have electors for each congressional district. And also, if you didn't know, here comes a fact! But back in the day, when the country was first founded, some state legislatures actually selected their electors when the Electoral College was first established, so we weren't even doing any voting. But that has, you know, been phased out, and it was phased out a while ago. But here's an interesting fact for you. If we, the United States, still used that Congressional District Electoral College method in 2020, where we did winner-take-all by Congressional District instead of by state, then the results would have been that Biden still would have won, but he would have only gotten 277 electoral votes, and Trump would have gotten 261. Cool facts, bro! Now, when the Electoral College first came into place, presidential and vice presidential candidates were actually separate from each other on the ballot. And it wasn't until the passage of the 12th Amendment in 1804 that president and vice president appeared together on the ballot because the presidential election 1800 was very messy. In fact, the Constitution doesn't even mention the term electoral college. It just mentions electors. It wasn't until the 19th century when electoral college became commonplace term in American society. So, from the founding days of the U.S. up until today, not really much has changed with the Electoral College. The biggest difference really is maybe how we choose the electors. It's not on a district basis. It's not from our state legislatures. It's by using the winner-take-all state method. Of course, the electoral votes that each state gets change every 10 years with the census. We've had new states that have been added to the union, so that 538 number has definitely changed. 538 is the highest it's ever been. And in the first presidential election in 1788, there were only 81 electoral votes and only 69, nice, 
voting electors, and George Washington won all of them in that election. But that number changed in every subsequent election until 1912, when it was at 531. And of course, in 1964, we got to 538. But the people who can vote has also obviously changed. Black people, females, minorities. It's not just white male landowners who can vote like it was when the Constitution was first adopted. We've had a couple amendments to deal with that. But yeah, that's basically why or how we have the Electoral College and how it's still in place today. But the thing is, there's a reason we talk about it all the time, and it's not just because it elects the president and the vice president every four years. It's because it's pretty controversial. I mean, you may have just heard me, but I did mention that its origins are probably, not probably, they are racist. If black people were given the right to vote at the Constitutional Convention, and with the northern and southern states, they had about equal population at the time. So, do you think that southern states would have pushed for electoral college? Probably not. So, there's the racist origins, which, I mean, you could probably say about a lot of things in our country. It's not critical race theory. It's just facts. I mean, you probably didn't know, you might not have known, that the Electoral College is literally racist, or it was intended to be. You just learned a new fact. Sanders facts! But adding on to that, you've also got the fact that in four presidential elections in U.S. history, the winner of the Electoral College did not get the most total votes. This happened in 1876-1888, and more recently, you might remember these ones, 2000. And of course, 2016. That's a bit of an issue. But the common argument in defense of the Electoral College is that it gives states power and is a compromise for states' rights. But here's the issue with that. Why should a candidate that gets fewer votes than their opponent win an election? Like, because they won more states? Wyoming is a state, I think. It has a population, as of 2021, of 578,803 people. California's population last year was 39.24 million. That equates to 54 electoral college votes. That's about 722,222 votes per electoral vote. In Wyoming, they have three electoral votes. So, the number of votes per electoral vote is 192,934. So a vote in Wyoming has 3.7 times the voting power than a vote in California. So in this case, not everyone's vote is equal. And it actually hasn't always been this way. There's a big reason that this is the case, which I'll explain later. But also, think about this. Take a look at New York State, for instance, because everybody knows what New York City looks like. It's got New York City down in the south, and then there's basically everything else. There's some cities, you know, Albany, Buffalo, Syracuse, all them. There's people who live there, but, you know, New York City is where the population is. So if they did district-based voting for their governor, let's say, and a governor candidate doesn't win the majority of the vote, but wins enough of the electoral votes in the districts because it's district-based and There's a certain amount of delegates in those districts. Would that make sense? No, it wouldn't. And there's a reason that no state does that. 
They do it by total votes. But what this also does, the Electoral College, is it dampens turnout and engagement in states where their vote doesn't mean as much in other states, or in states where the winner is almost certainly known beforehand. And this is bad for down-ballot races, because if I live in, let's say, Mississippi, if I'm going to vote for a Democrat, why would I? Because I know the Republican's going to win. So in that case, because the president is the big, shiny election every four years, I'm most likely thinking about that. So then I don't go to the polls, and I don't elect people for Senate, for House, for City Council, for whatever. So then the down-ballot races get neglected. This also leads, though, to a big focus on swing states for presidential campaigns. So, like, why would a presidential candidate care about going to or spending money in states like New York or Arkansas or Alabama or Illinois? Because they already know that they're either going to win or they're going to lose that state. Basically, when they get into the race, they know we're not going to win Arkansas or we're not going to win New York. Instead. What you have in recent elections is a big focus on just a few states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, and a few others. And this doesn't really change on a four-year cycle. It's usually the same states. And something else that the Electoral College does put a damper on is third parties. Because with the winner-take-all system in most states, it's pretty difficult for third-party candidates to even gain votes in the process, unlike in other Western democracies. I mean, you know that if you listen to our podcast on France and Germany, where we're talking about all these different parties, a direct popular vote would probably allow third-party candidates to actually gain more steam. There's a lot of talk about, we hate the two-party system. Well, the Electoral College is a big part of why the two-party system is still in place and not really going to change anytime soon. Of course, there are many in favor of keeping the Electoral College because they believe that it makes candidates focus on states with smaller populations. Of course, Arkansas's population isn't that big. Montana's population isn't that big. North Dakota, Wyoming's population isn't that big. And they don't really care about that. Republicans know they're going to win those states. Rhode Island's population isn't that big. Vermont, Democrats know they're going to win those states. So why would they bother? True, true. But that's basically a look back at the history of the Electoral College and why it's so controversial. But now let's go into more modern day, because we know about the history of the Electoral College. So now I've got the question, will it be changed in some form or fashion anytime soon? Well, actually, before I do answer that question, I just got to tell you that this segment is actually pretty good timing because there is a new bill that just passed Congress that is related to the Electoral College, kind of. It's called the Electoral Count Reform Act. And it actually reforms the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which governs the counting of Electoral College votes in Congress. It is the largest reform to the Electoral College since 1887, and it doesn't really change the Electoral College at all. Because what it does is it clearly specifies that the vice president's role in the proceedings of the electoral votes being counted by Congress is purely ceremonial. Obviously, this needed to be done. Because there was a certain former president who we actually mentioned earlier on this podcast, wrote a, you know, a little Christmas greeting. What are you implying? Who wanted his vice president to overturn the results of the 2020 election because he lost, you know, and he's a sore loser. 
The vice president, of course, refused. Because the language, though, of that 1887 law is murky on the subject, it wasn't actually known whether the vice president could do such a thing. And of course, the vice president was Mike Pence at the time. Now the answer is clear because of this bill that just passed Congress. He or she cannot, because obviously it's a she now, Kamala Harris. The bill also raises the bar for objecting to a state's slate of electors. You may have remembered this was going on on January 6, 2021 in Congress. Currently, if just one member of the House and one member of the Senate challenge a state's electors, the joint session of Congress, which is what we had on January 6, splits back into the House and back into the Senate to deliberate on the electors. And of course, that happened back in 2021 for baseless reasons. Now, the bill raises the threshold for an objection to 20% of the members of each chamber. But in regards to actually abolishing the Electoral College and moving to a direct popular vote method, the bill doesn't do that. That's all the bill does. And don't keep your hopes up. Because in order for the Electoral College to actually be abolished, it would have to be an amendment to the Constitution to do that. That's the only way it can happen. And in order to pass an amendment to the Constitution, which we've done many times in the history of this country, but probably not for this, you would need to get the approval of two-thirds of Congress and three-fourths of the states. So you need a pretty overwhelming majority of Congress and the states to approve the amendment. And that's probably not going to happen with this. But the closest that the U.S. has actually come to abolishing the Electoral College, because we've tried it many times before, came in 1969, just after the 1968 presidential election, where Richard Nixon obviously won. He got 301 electoral votes, which was 56% of the electoral votes, but he only won 43.5% of the popular vote. Now, that bill, which would have instituted a plurality system based on the national popular vote, received 339 votes in the House and passed. That was massive in the House. But in the Senate, it only got 53 votes. So it died in the Senate, and then it was dead basically forever. So sad. And that bill actually, something interesting, would have required that a presidential and vice presidential ticket win 40% of the nationwide vote, and that if none did, the top two tickets would advance to a runoff election, like what happens with the Senate elections all the time now in Georgia. Jimmy Carter, when he was president in 1977, also wrote to Congress, which included his support for abolishing the Electoral College. And since the year 1800, there have been over 700 proposals introduced in Congress to reform or eliminate the Electoral College. Of course, None of them have passed Congress, let alone even get to a vote for the states. But more recently, joint resolutions have been introduced in Congress, but to no avail. But there is something interesting you might want to know about called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Seriously? This is a proposed interstate compact that will award all the electoral votes of the states that sign on to it to the presidential candidate that wins the overall popular vote. So basically, if there's a state that has signed on to this compact and that state votes Donald Trump wins that state, but Joe Biden actually wins the popular vote, then that state 
would give its electors to Joe Biden. So far, 15 states and D.C. have signed on to the compact. In order for the compact to take effect, it would need 270 total electoral votes. And right now, it only has 195, which is 72% of what it needs. By the way, it's not that far off. And the first state to sign on did so in 2007, but it has been gaining traction in the last few years. Now, the states that have signed on already are in order from first signed on to last, Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, Hawaii, Washington State, Massachusetts, D.C., of course, Vermont, California, Rhode Island, New York, Connecticut, Colorado, Delaware, New Mexico, and Oregon. That's a lot of facts. So, it needs 75 electoral votes to become legally standing and take effect. So, if it can survive potential legal challenges and then get to 270 votes, that's probably going to be the biggest change we see to the Electoral College. And in the event that that happens, actually, then the winner of the popular vote would undoubtedly win the Electoral College. And there are definitely people in power post-Electoral College, like Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, who you may know, actually, from serving on the January 6th committee. He was on Face the Nation on CBS Sunday morning, and he said the Electoral College has become a danger to American democracy. And it really doesn't help that it really helped fuel Donnie Boy's stolen election rants and the tricks he used to try and overturn the election in 2020. Doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon, though. But the thing that I mentioned earlier, that a person's vote in Wyoming means a lot more than a person's vote in California, hasn't always been the case. That's because as the country got bigger, the House of Representatives kept getting bigger. Until in 1929, when it was at 435 seats, and Congress passed the Permanent Apportionment Act which permanently set the membership of the House at 435 seats. Now, at the time, each member of Congress was representing about 280,000 constituents on average in their districts. But now, that number is over 762,000 people. This is true. You know, when you're taking a look at other developed Western democracies, This number is very large. Like, for instance, in the United Kingdom, a member of parliament represents about 100,000 people. 762,000 people? That number is actually massive when you look at it on a worldwide scale. And we're supposed to be a representative democracy. Now, of course, if we kept expanding the House of Representatives to, you know, what the trend was, it would be you know, at least over a thousand members by now. It would be massive. But maybe that should be the case because, you know, take a look at the UK again. Their population is about 67 million people and they have 650 members of parliament. So why do we only have 435 House seats? That doesn't make sense to me. The House needs to expand. But the only way that that could happen is actually Congress just passing a new law. It doesn't need the two-thirds. It's not an amendment. It's just a law. It doesn't need the two-thirds of the Congress to approve or the three-fourths of the states to approve. It just needs a majority of the House and 
without the filibuster, 60 votes in the Senate, which is, you know, the hard part. But that just sounds like the better idea, because it expands the House, it expands representation in this country, and it somewhat expands or fixes the Electoral College. So that's what I would think to be a good idea. And if you go online, I mean, there's a bunch of articles that would tend to agree with that idea. So, you know, it just makes sense, but that's my two cents. But basically, that's the history behind this American tradition. It's interesting, but it's also complicated. And when you actually look at it, it's actually pretty disgusting. That's blasphemy! And in my view, it's time to, if not eliminate it, at least reform it which could be done by expanding the House of Representatives, which we ought to do anyway. And apparently, I am in the majority, because according to a poll from the Pew Research Center in 2020, it found that 58% of Americans prefer a system where the presidential candidate who receives the most votes nationwide wins the election. And when Pew conducted that survey again earlier this year, that number was up to 63%, and it found that 80% of Democrats support the move, and the same can be said about 42% of Republicans. So there you have it. That's basically all you need to know about the Electoral College, its history, why it's so controversial, and what might be done in the future. There's a couple things we could do to change it in the future, but you know what? We will see. Spitting the truth. Xander's facts. All right, so that is our big topic for the week, the Electoral College. But before we get done with our final episode of the year, it is time to preview the college football playoff semifinals. We are talking football to wrap up the podcast, episode 88 of the podcast here on January 28th, because we haven't talked about much football, college football, really since the beginning of the season when I did my season previous, but now we're talking about the end of the college football season. It's bowl season, y'all. If you didn't know, I've been making my predictions for all the bowl games on the Xander's Facts SC Instagram page, which you should go check out. There's been a bunch of bowl games going on, but I gotta be honest, I have not watched a single bowl game yet. Whoops. And if you're like me, I'm not gonna shame you, but... We actually have some meaningful college football games that are coming up this weekend with the college football playoff semifinal games. And the four teams that are in the semifinals this year, Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and Ohio State. So let's look at the teams. Let's preview these games because the 2023, how about that, 2023, college football playoff, the semifinals takes place this Saturday, which is New Year's Eve. It is the second-to-last edition of the CFP with only four teams because it has been confirmed that a 12-team college football playoff with six automatic bids for conference champions will begin with the 2024 season, or what will be the 2025 college football playoff. So before we actually preview the matchups we got in the semifinals, I actually wanted to know what a 12-team playoff would look like this year. You might have been wondering that too. I was wondering, wonder no longer though, because I got the answer. If there was a 12-team playoff this year. Get ready. And in that new format, the four highest-ranked conference champions receive a bye from the first round. There's a first round, there's a quarterfinal, there's a semifinal, 
and then there's the national championship game. The first round games are actually going to be played on campus sites on the second or third weekend in December, and quarterfinals and semifinals are going to be played at the New Year's Six Bowl games, and the national championship will still be played at a neutral site each year. But the four teams that would receive that bye in the first round are Georgia, Michigan, and then two who did not make the playoff this year, Clemson and Utah. And the rest of the teams that would be included in the field, at least according to the current CFP rankings and the teams that won their conference championship this year are, in order, TCU, Ohio State, Alabama, Tennessee, Kansas State, USC, Penn State, and Tulane. I mean, that sounds like pretty exciting. Like, what was it, eight, nine years ago or so, we were excited about a four-team playoff, a 12-team playoff. Sounds really exciting. That is coming up in 2024, into 2024, into 2025. That'll be exciting. But let's get back to reality here for 2022. Big game alert! We only got four teams, and it's time to preview the matchups in the semifinals. So the first semifinal matchup we have will take place on Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern from the Verbo Fiesta Bowl in Glendale, Arizona. It is number two, Michigan! who is undefeated, 13-0, taking on number three, TCU, who is 12-1. Let's start with number two, Michigan, because the Wolverines went through the regular season undefeated for the first time since 1997. That was also the last time that they won the national championship. It's a fact. That includes a win at Ohio State for the second straight year, and in Columbus, for the first time since 2000, Michigan dominated Ohio State in that second half, and they dominated Purdue in the Big Ten Championship, and they make their second consecutive appearance in the playoff. But their star running back all season, Blake Corum, is out. But Donovan Edwards can pick up the slack. He had 216 rushing yards and two touchdowns in the win over Ohio State. And the Wolverines can also pick up the slack in the second half. They have the second highest point differential after halftime through 12 games in the past 10 years. It is plus 186. They are outscoring their opponents in the second half by 186 points this season. That is insane. And J.J. McCarthy is the quarterback after taking Cade McNamara's spot earlier this year, and the Wolverines have put up 40 points or more in seven of the 13 games they have played in this season. But on the other sideline, it's number three, TCU. A lot of people expected Michigan to be here, but not TCU. The Horned Frogs came out of nowhere this year to finish the regular season undefeated before they fell in a thrilling Big 12 championship game to Kansas State. Only they lost 31-28. to But in the regular season, the Horned Frogs rolled through the conference to go undefeated, including defeating four at the time ranked opponents in a row. That was Oklahoma, Kansas, Oklahoma State, and TCU. And it was also the first season at the helm for head coach Sonny Dykes, who was the head coach at Cal and SMU before he replaced longtime head coach Gary Patterson in Fort Worth. But Dykes has been at the helm of an electrifying offense this year. They have completed 17 plays of 50 yards or more. That is second 
in FBS just to Tennessee. Another fact. And the quarterback completed those plays has been Max Duggan, who's thrown for 3,321 yards this year and 30 touchdowns. Also on offense, he's got potential first-round pick wide receiver Quentin Johnston to throw to and running back Kendry Miller to hand the ball off to. And Miller has 1,342 rushing yards this season, which is the most for TCU since LaDainian Tomlinson back in 2000. Big name. And he also ranks third in the conference with 650 rushing yards after contact. As of Tuesday night in this matchup, Michigan is favored by seven and a half points. They're the favorites. Watching Michigan this year, though, especially in the Ohio State game, I mean, it's really hard to see how any team could stop them. I don't think TCU's defense won't, so it is going to be a shootout. They're going to have to win it in a shootout, and I think it's going to be high scoring, but I've got Michigan winning this game and covering if you care about that. Michigan will beat TCU and move on to the national championship game, but the other semifinal matchup on Saturday is number one Georgia, who was undefeated 13-0, taking on number four at 11-1 Ohio State at the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia, the top team in the country, are the reigning national champions, and they have brought the band back together this year to tear through the SEC once again. The Bulldogs are hoping to become the first team since another SEC team to repeat as champs. That was Alabama in 2011 and 2012. Quarterback Stetson Bennett is back from last year, and he's even better this year. And he's got top tight end Brock Bowers, get the ball to, and they have a three-headed beast at running back with Kenny McIntosh, Kendall Milton, and Dejan Edwards, all names you are going to hear on Saturday. But Georgia's defense lost five first-round picks from last year's team, but they are doing wonders again this year. They are second in FBS with just 12.8 points allowed per game. And that is all led by defensive lineman Jalen Carter, who in his last six games, just his last six games, he has 24 tackles and three sacks. And plus, the dogs have been here and they've done that last year. Something to think about with this year's team. But the other team is Ohio State, number four. Now, on conference championship weekend, when they were number five, they just needed one thing to go right because they had lost to Michigan. They were out of the Big Ten championship game. For all intents and purposes, they were out of the playoff. But all they needed was USC, who was number four at the time, to lose to Utah in the Pac-12 championship game. And guess what happened? Number 11, Utah, 47. Number four, USC, 24. So the Buckeyes jumped the Trojans into the playoff. How about that? And the last time and the only time that a team that didn't play at a conference championship game snuck into the playoff in the four spot, besides Notre Dame because they don't play in the conference championship games, is Alabama in 2018. You remember that year? Tua Tagovailoa. Touchdown! Alabama wins! In overtime, Alabama beat Georgia in the national championship game that year. Will that happen this year for the number four seed? Probably not. But Ohio State are still Ohio State. They are led by Heisman finalist quarterback C.J. Stroud, who's got 3,340 passing yards and 37 touchdowns this year. He's got Marvin Harrison Jr. to throw to, one of the best wide receivers in the country, but he is going to be without another top wide receiver, Jackson Smith and Jigba. The Buckeyes really haven't looked vulnerable all year, 
They didn't until the Michigan game, but none of those other teams were the Georgia Bulldogs. So as of Tuesday night, Georgia is favored by six and a half points. It is just the second time in history that these schools are playing each other in a football game. The first matchup was the Florida Citrus Bowl in 1993, a 21-14 win for Georgia. These are facts. And Georgia's playing in Atlanta for the third time this season. If you didn't know, the campus of the University of Georgia is actually in Athens, not Atlanta. But this will be the third time that they've played in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. And I predict that they will win their third game in Atlanta this season. I've got Georgia winning and covering. Georgia moves on to face Michigan in the national championship. So the winners of the two semifinal games will meet on Monday, January 9th at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. And kickoff actually this year is a little bit earlier, 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. Usually it's 8.30 or whatever. So it's a little earlier this year. And the national championship and both semifinal games, if you didn't know, will air on TV on ESPN. So for my prediction for the national championship game, I've got Michigan facing Georgia, the top two seeds, basically the consensus top two teams all season long. And for my pick to win it all, I think I'm going to go with Michigan. Some of it because I don't want to pick Georgia to repeat, but also because Michigan's a really good football team on both sides of the ball. Georgia is too, but I'm going to go with Michigan. Michigan, the Wolverines from Ann Arbor will win the national championship, their 12th claimed college football crown. That's a fact. How about that? That is basically the only preview that you need before you sit down on New Year's Eve and watch some college football. The college football playoff semifinals. How about that? So that's it with football. That's it with the Electoral College. And that's all I got for you on episode 88 of the Zaders Facts podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember that if you liked all the facts that I had on this week's edition, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 88, download the podcast episode, and then you can delete it the next day. And then you can re-download it the next day, and you can do the cycle all over again. Rate and review the podcast. Go check out Zaners Facts on all the social media sites. Twitter, still on there for now. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Xander's Facts, that is Xander with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. We call it Spread the Facts! Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts, about Xander's Facts on YouTube, because Xander's Facts is posting all our new episodes, including this one, to YouTube. You should go check out and subscribe there. And check out the Xander's Facts link tree. It's got all the Xander's Facts links that you need, including for Xander'sFacts.com and the Xander's Facts Shop. Go check out and spread all the facts. That's it for episode 88. Next week, we will not have a new episode of the podcast to start the new year. We're going to take a break, relax, make sure everyone gets their New Year's resolutions done, which should be spreading the facts, Xander's facts. That was dumb. And making sure that all gets done. But next week, we're going to have a Xander's facts flashback to fill all your facts needs. But episode 89 is coming back in two weeks. And by then, Congress, the new Congress, is going to be inaugurated. So that'll be fun to talk about. We'll talk about that in two weeks on this 
podcast. But that is it. That is a wrap on episode 88 of the Zeta's Facts podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see y'all with episode 89 in two weeks. Z-A-N-D-E-R-S-F-A-C-T-S dot com.